So the word of God from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, and out of reverence for the word of God, wherever you may be, if you would please stand for the reading. So Paul prays, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord today. And I pray that his spirit would allow it to reach our hearts in such a way that we would grow up to a greater understanding of the immeasurable nature of the love of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I've not, not really said much about this in my years as your pastor, because I just, I don't like to brag about stuff, but I just feel like I need to tell you that when, when I was in first and second grade, I was pretty much a math genius. I had Einstein-esque math skills. You could give me a whole sheet of addition or subtraction problems. I could do it in less than a minute with no mistakes, every time. And I would raise my hand that I was done and my other students, my classmates would scoff. There's no way he's finished. And my teacher would come over and write a hundred on my page and I would hold it up and say, see, my parents were beginning to research Ivy League schools that would admit me early. This continued on in third and fourth grade as well. I got into multiplication and the ever difficult long division. Not a problem, under a minute, no mistakes. Quantum physics seemed to be my career path. And then I got to middle school and I lost a little bit of my my math career luster when I encountered something called pre-algebra and they didn't give you all the numbers anymore, they stuck some letters in there. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And I got to high school and I did algebra one and two and it made even less sense. And then I got to sophomore year, I did geometry, I got C's. And then my junior year trigonometry, I got a never before seen in the Swanson household D and I was not invited to take calculus my senior year. <laughs> See, in mathematics, that's how it works. You have to grasp and master one level before they let you go on and take the next level. Because if you can't do this, you're, you're never gonna understand that. And that actually, if you think about it, the way it works in mathematics, it works that same way in life. Rarely do you just enter into anything in life at the top level and know what to do. You learn. You grow, it's why so many young couples today get a dog before they have a baby, right? Let's see if we can keep something alive before we try the real thing. 
Right, it's why as a doctor, you, you go to med school and you do a residency before you actually get entrusted to see real patients. If you're a counselor, you have to do 2,000 hours of counseling under observation before you get to see clients on your own. It's why I became an associate pastor before I was a senior pastor. I needed to learn and grow, and I think all of us wanna do that. We wanna do it personally, professionally, I hope. In the last few years, my wife's here on the front row, she can attest to whether I've gotten to be a better husband better father in the last five years? Have I matured and grown? And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. We should have a, a desire to, to grow and mature and learn and advance in our spiritual lives. God in the scripture shows us that over and over again. For heaven's sake, in Luke, Luke 2, 52, it says even Jesus grew in wisdom and stature among God and man. So even Jesus in the fullness of his humanity was growing, he was learning. He spent 30 years doing things we don't know, but we know one of those things was he was growing up, he was maturing before he had his ministry. And isn't that what we want? Don't we wanna grow up and mature? I mean, how many of us when we were six or seven years old said, I, I just wanna stay six? No six, that looks pretty good right now. I'd love to be six right now. But when you're six, you, you wanna do the things you see your older siblings, siblings doing. You, you, wanna, you wanna get a job, you wanna drive a car, you wanna have your own money, you wanna make your way in the world. I, I desperately wanna be like my dad. I wanted to, to grow up. We all want to do those things. And the same should be true in our spiritual lives. It should be. But, here, but here's what I see. I see too often that we become satisfied in our Christian lives. We reach a place where it feels to us as if we have enough of God, Jesus loves me, this I know, and I don't really need to know much more, right? I, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven, so I got that down. And yet people, don't you understand what the scripture tells us that God has a whole storehouse of things that he desires to pour into your life, but he can't pour it into your life until you're ready to receive it. If he gave it to you now, you'd never know what it is. See, you'll never really grasp what it means to forgive someone else until you first understand how God in Christ has forgiven you. You'll never grasp the joy and the happiness that generosity brings you, and I mean that. It is pure joy and happiness when you mature into a generous life. But you'll never know that until you understand the ways that God in Christ has lavished his generous nature, his generous love on you. You'll never fathom the depths of what is contained in his word and the deep truths therein until you crack it open and read it. You know, it works kind of like math. You gotta grow into it. So let me ask you today, in your spiritual life, in your growth, in your maturity, how are you doing? Do you feel satisfied with what you have? Or do you hunger and yearn for more and more of what God wants to show you about himself, what he wants to reveal to you? Do you hunger for it? Do you wanna grow up in Christ? And see, that's precisely what Paul is praying for this morning. And as I said last week, when you study the prayers of Paul, you realize he's not praying about the things you and I tend to pray about. He's praying about things that are so much different. But remember that the Ephesian church is, 
is in this New Testament era where God has brought two ethnicities into the church. They don't know each other, they don't understand each other, they don't speak the same language, and yet he's saying you need to be one. But he's revealed the only way we'll know unity in Christ is when through our union with Christ, we understand that all of us are darkened by sin and in need of a savior. We've all been adopted through Christ as his beloved sons and daughters, and we've been called to be a part of his kingdom building purpose on earth, and that all those things unite us and join us together. But let's be honest, if you lack maturity in Christ, you're never gonna get all that. Unity in Christ is like physics, not algebra. And so Paul is praying that we would grow and learn. Charles Spurgeon writes, like a wise and enlightened teacher, Paul desires for the saints that they should receive that previous education which is necessary before they're able to enter upon such a science as the measurement of Christ's love. So Spurgeon says, you gotta get the basics down before we can start talking about the measurement of Christ's love. So he's praying about that maturity, those foundational things. And I have to confess, you know, I went to seminary because they said there would be no math, right? And then I get to this and Paul starts talking about heights and lengths and depths. And I'm, I'm a little worried that he's about to say, can you determine the circumference of Christ's love? Now, thankfully he doesn't go there. It's just measurements. And that's what I wanna look at today as we're measuring, as we're thinking about the reality of the love of God. So first, Paul's praying for growth and maturity in our lives so that we will be able to at some point understand the full measure of the nature of God's love. Verse 16, he prays, may God strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that's just foundational stuff that I know when I come to faith, Christ dwells within me by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Christianity 101. But as you think about it, he's writing to a Christian audience. When we come to faith, doesn't Jesus come dwell in you by the power of the Holy Spirit? Shouldn't they already have that? So is Paul contradicting himself? No, he's not. What he's saying is that Christ by the power of the Spirit comes to indwell us and we learn and grow in understanding his presence there. The great theologian Charles Hodge said this, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. It is the same with the strengthening of the spirit. What Paul prays for his readers is that they may be fortified, braced, invigorated, may lay hold ever more firmly by faith of this divine strength, this divine indwelling. We gotta grow into it, we gotta learn it. Even the word in Greek for indwelling is the word katoikeo, which means not just inhabit, but it means to settle down somewhere. So this idea of the indwelling presence of Jesus means that it's not temporary, it's permanent. Jesus lived there by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I first came to Christ, I was not fully aware what that meant. I didn't understand that my body had now become this sacred holy vessel as Christ dwelled within me and I need to think about how I used it and how I bore witness to him through it. I didn't pay much attention to the way the power of the spirit was trying to move in me and move me towards certain things and nudge me and guide me to learn. But as I, as I grew up in the faith, as I studied his word, I began to, to take much greater confidence from the presence of God in me. 
gave me a firm foundation, gave me security. I became much more attuned to what the Spirit was whispering in my ear about certain texts or about things I needed to do or phone calls I needed to make. You know, about three or four months ago, three or four years ago, Lee and I had a seminary student come live with us for three or four months. And, and it was great. We were happy to have her, but it was a little bit of an adjustment. And even when we knew that she was living upstairs, we were downstairs, even when we knew she was there, we knew she was living with us. Sometimes at night, there'd be like a, we'd hear a door close or a thump or a bump or an unusual noise. And it would startle us and we'd go, and then we go, oh, that's right. Someone lives with us. Someone lives there. And that's what Paul's trying to pray for us to understand. Someone lives here now. And we need to understand the indwelling presence of Christ and grow up into knowing what the power of the Spirit wants to do in and through us. Again, from Spurgeon, brothers and sisters, I trust that you are not among those who think it quite enough to be barely alive unto God. That's what I said earlier. Are you satisfied? Are you good with being barely alive unto God? He says, I trust that you wish to not only be babes in the family, but young men and women and fathers and mothers in the household, and that you even aspire to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit with might, to enter into the soul and marrow of divine things and to discern between things that differ. Why should we ever be obliged to lay again the foundations? So Spurgeon is saying, we need to lay the foundations once and we lay them once by laying them securely. Christ dwells within me by faith, according to the power of the spirit. And I need to be attentive to that. I need to learn about that. That needs to be the basis and the foundation by which I live so that the second step of maturity can then happen. And that's verse 17, that we are rooted and established in love. That's maturity step number two. Are you rooted and established in love? Love must be the basis by which you live. Love is the basis for all your behavior. Love is the ethic by which you make your choices. And how could it be anything else? If Christ indwells you by the power of the Holy Spirit, then of course love is going to be that basis. And that was so necessary for Paul that the Ephesian church grow up in this because once again, the people coming to the church had nothing in common. If love was not going to be the basis of how they treated each other, they didn't have anything in common. They didn't share values. They didn't share ideas. They didn't share language. It had to be built on love. For heaven's sake, Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you as I have loved you. So you are called to love one another. Friends, never has our country needed the witness of the church to be given in this matter. Pray that we will mature and grow up so that we are rooted and established in love because they need the witness of the church in a time when we are torn asunder by hatred and division and polarization. Tim Keller, fighting pancreatic cancer, said this last week, the demonization and dehumanization of the other side must stop. When profession Christians do it, it's triply wrong. Christians can never feel morally superior to anyone else. We can never imply that another deserves God's condemnation, but we do not. If you believe that, you fundamentally don't understand the gospel. If you're condemning someone else for their ideas or for their behavior, 
and not realizing at the same time that you are possessed of that same nature of sin and that you're both in need of the love of Jesus, then you're missing the whole thing. People, the old song is true. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And so regardless of another's politics, their ideology, their individualism, whatever their views or their behavior may be, we cannot withhold the love of God and exchange it for hatred because there's something more important going on. If we don't love them, how do they ever come to know the truth and the hope of the gospel that we possess? Their faith and their relationship with God and their ability to be attracted to it by your life is more important than politics and ideologies. We must be rooted and grounded in love, especially in this time in which we live. And then third, having the indwelling presence of Christ by the power of the spirit rooted in love, we get to the good stuff. He says in verse 18, I pray that you might have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He says, now that you've got that foundation, you've matured, I wanna blow your mind. By, by talking to you about measuring the love of Christ. And that's what's so cool about the words that Paul uses and the way he describes it. He says, we're gonna measure it, which is the same thing as saying what? It's real, it's tangible, it's palpable. It's not fantasy, it's not folklore, it's not wishing, but the love of God is so real that we can measure it. And so he says, oh, first, the love of God is wide. It is so wide that Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the entire world for everyone is invited to come eat the king's feast made possible by the sacrifice of the blood of the lamb. Spurgeon writes, the breadth of Christ's love is such that it extends to all ranks and races of mankind. The love of Jesus Christ does not surround our favored island alone, Spurgeon being from the UK, but like the ocean, it washes every shore to kings upon thrones, but with equal and more frequent bounty to slaves in their dungeons. But brothers and sisters, we get the best idea of the breadth of Christ's love when we behold it flowing to our lost and guilty selves. I never thought it so broad a stream until I found it reached to me, even to me. See, this is the breadth of Christ's love, which tells us that Revelation 7, 9 is true, that the kingdom of God is made up of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, that his love washes on every shore, and it even washes to you, it includes you. So if it washes onto every shore, who are we to exclude it? Who are we to hold it back, regardless of the views or the politics of someone else. Do we speak truth? Absolutely. But Ephesians 4.15 says we speak the truth in love. The breadth of the love of God is so vast. May our love be just as wide. And then friends, the love of God is long. And it is so much longer than we have ever conceived. We think God's love for us begins when we're born. But oh my goodness, it is so much more eternal and lasting than that, he says in Ephesians 1, 5, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Your love, the love that God has for you didn't start when you were being formed in your mother's womb. It started when God had you in his mind, when he predestined you 
to exist and to be loved and to be part of his plan to redeem and save the world. Well, when did that plan come to be? It's always been. God's love for you extends infinitely before you were born and it extends infinitely into the future. Jeremiah 31, three, I've loved you with an everlasting love. It extends forever and ever into the future. And so you think about Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, do you really know how long is the love of God? Wrap your brain around that for a second, that God has always loved you infinitely and eternally. And then the love of God is high. It is so high, it reaches up to the highest heights of heaven, never to be exceeded by any other love. Because Jesus, by virtue of his death and resurrection, he rose again in glorified human form. He could talk, he could eat. The scars were still visible on his body. And yet on the day of the ascension, he was lifted and raised to the right hand of the Father. And when he was raised, he did not shed his glorified humanity. Friends, the incarnation is not a temporary condition. Jesus remains a glorified human today in the fullness of that humanity and that divinity. And so we have the hope that the love of God will lift us to those heights as well, that our broken humanity covered in the blood of Jesus will one day be lifted in glorified form to the heavenly realms forever and ever. Oh, the love of God reaches to such eternal heights and then friends, the love of God is deep. It is deep enough to reach into the darkness and the evil and the sin of the world and even reach into the depths of your sin and redeem you from it. Think about depth with me for a second. When you think about depth, you can't see how deep something is unless you're close to it, can you? I can tell how tall a building is. I can tell how long it is. I can move and find out how wide it is, but I don't know its depth until I go up and I look over the edge of the hole. We have to move close to Jesus to know the depth. Spurgeon writes, hell's waves rolled over him. The eternal wrath of God spent itself upon his blessed head. Oh sinner, oh backslider, you cannot have gone too deep for Christ's love to reach you. You cannot have sinned so foully or too foully for forgiveness. Where sin abounds, we're told grace abounds even more. Oh, the love of God is deep. It is immeasurable, wide and high and long and deep, but let's not forget what ties it all together. Let's not forget the absolute key ingredient that allows us to begin to fathom, even in just a small way, the immeasurable nature of the love of God is found in verse 18. When Paul prays, he says, I pray that you together with all the saints may know. Do you understand that, what that means? You and I will never know the full extent of the love of God for us in Christ until we know it together, until we know it as a body. I have to know more than how God has loved me. I'll only know the full extent of God's love when I know how he's loved you. See, I won't know fully how long is the love of God until I see that love reaching from your life into the lives of others by virtue of your generosity. I'll never know how high it is until together you and I profess our faith in the hope of the resurrection. 
I'll never know how wide it is until I hear the stories of how the oceans of God's love swept up on your shore. And I'll never know how deep until I hear the story of the sin of your life and where you were lingering and the darkness that you experienced and yet how Jesus brought you from that into the light of life. We only know the full measure of God's love until we come together as God's people and we experience it as one body which is why we come to this table today. It's at the cross that everything is encapsulated in terms of the measurement of God's love. The vertical beam shows us how high and how deep. The horizontal beam points infinitely in each direction that the love of God is so long and infinite. And then we see the arms of Jesus stretched out and nailed to the cross, revealing to us its breadth. And so we come together as God's people. It's why we haven't had communion until now, because we haven't been together. We can't know and observe the sacrament biblically and theologically until we receive it as the embodiment of Christ, as the church given by God to the world through which God is then going to reveal himself. So friends, we come to the table together. And as I know you and as you know me, and as we experience the oneness of the body of Christ, then with Christ indwelling us, the power of the spirit at work within us, rooted in love, we'll start to see just how immeasurable and glorious, how wide, high, long and deep is the love of God for you. Are you satisfied? I pray not. I pray that the spirit will prick your heart and give you such hunger that you would know more and more the solid foundation of faith that will then allow you to take the next step and discern the greater, richer things of God, not the least of which is his love for you and for this world. Let's pray.